Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 70 called The New Diocletian. In the last episode we heard about the Emperor Zeno and his extraordinary reign from 474 to 491. Extraordinary because he survived against all the odds. This initially very unpopular Isaurian emperor who only got the throne in the first place because Leo desperately needed his support to ward off the powerful Gothic faction in the army led by Aspar survived his backstabbing mother-in-law, his treacherous fellow Isaurian Ilus and the comically incompetent Basiliscus to emerge serenely in the later 480s as the emperor who got the empire back on track after the disastrous failure of Leo's expedition to reconquer North Africa in 468. His greatest achievement was to persuade Theodoric the Amal to lead his Ostrogoths out of the Balkans to Italy, something which I ascribe to the rebuilding of the Pricental armies. You'll recall my theory is that these two new field armies, Pricental referring to the Latin term in Pricenti, or in the Emperor's presence, were created in the 440s to fight Attila the Hun, and then sent to Carthage in 468, where they found a watery grave. But 20 years later, they'd been rebuilt, and rather than fight them, Theodoric judged it better to attack the much weaker Odoacer, the de facto king of Italy. And as we'll hear in another episode, this proved to be a very smart choice. So you might think Zeno spent his last years congratulating himself and sipping wine in the imperial palace. But no, just the opposite. He fell into a sort of state of despair, largely, I think, because he'd hoped to pass the throne to his son, who was also called Zeno, and was born to his first wife, Arcadia. But he proved to be a huge disappointment to his father and grew up a dissolute wreck, indulging in wine, women and song such an extent that he died young, possibly of a venereal infection. There was no obvious successor and Zeno's paranoia went into overdrive, fearing plots to assassinate him, which wasn't totally unreasonable given the number in his lifetime. He alienated public opinion further by executing a well-regarded palace courtier, Pelagius, who was said to be plotting against him. What made this particularly scandalous was that the advice against Pelagius came from a disreputable soothsayer skilled in occult learning, Morianus, who Zeno had taken to consulting. Beset with worry and probably close to 70 years old, Zeno fell ill and died possibly of dysentery on April the 9th, 491. The moment Zeno died, there was uproar in Constantinople. The people wanted a change. They hated the Azorians and wanted a Roman emperor. The mood of the mob is well recorded for us, thanks to the work of the 10th century Byzantine emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus, who, as I've mentioned before, preserved numerous historical records for posterity, organised into categories such as foreign embassies, and in this case, on ceremonies. Therefore, we have a fascinating account of how on the day after Zeno's death, a crowd of citizens and soldiers gathered in the Hippodrome, waiting to be addressed by the Empress Ariadne about the plans for the succession. When she appeared in the imperial box, accompanied by ministers and courtiers, the crowd made it very clear what they wanted, shouting, Long live the Augusta! 
give us a Roman emperor, referring to their hatred for the Azorians. Her reply was delivered by the Master of Offices, whose voice was no doubt louder than hers, and provides an excellent insight into the politics of the court. Quote, In order that the choice may be pure and pleasing to God, we have commanded the ministers and the Senate, the vote of the army concurring, to make the election in the presence of the Gospels and in the presence of the Patriarch, so that no one may be influenced by friendship or enmity or kinship or any other private motive, but may vote with his conscience clear. Therefore, as the matter is weighty and concerns the welfare of the world, you must acquiesce in a short delay until the funeral rites of Zeno of pious memory have been performed so that the election may not be overly hasty. End quote. Ariadne then withdrew with her ministers and senators to discuss candidates. It's interesting to note that the Patriarch of Constantinople, Euphemius, was excluded from the discussion. Eventually a candidate was chosen, Anastasius, a man who had held a long and distinguished career in the imperial treasury. He was well known in Constantinople as a capable administrator and incorruptible. Old by the standards of the age in his 60s, having been born around 430 in Dyrrhachium into a high-ranking Illyrian family, he was a man of tall stature and remarkable for his handsome eyes, one blue and one black, which caused him to be called dikoros in Greek, meaning two-pupiled. Our sources describe him as intelligent, well-educated, courteous and extremely energetic in pursuit of his administrative duties. He was also known to be a devout Christian, although he had monophysite sympathies, which caused the patriarch Euphemius to demand that he sign a declaration of orthodoxy. For once, the empire had chosen an emperor on merit, not because of his dynastic lineage or because he was a stooge of the most powerful military factions, such as with Marcion, Leo and Zeno. Anastasius was the first emperor to be genuinely popular since probably Constantine the Great. His reign would now prove to be just as important, in my opinion, as that of Diocletian in the 3rd century. And the reason was that, like Diocletian, he re-established in particular the financial and economic well-being of the empire. But his reign was also turbulent, marked by the first significant external conflict since the Ostrogoths had threatened Constantinople, with both the Huns along the Danube and Sasanian Persia. Internally, he would also face rebellion and unrest. His first challenge was one he was well prepared for. His popular support rested on his being Roman rather than Isaurian. Therefore, a showdown with the Azorians was inevitable, and the Azorians were still a powerful faction in Constantinople and had been hoping Zeno would make his brother Longinus his successor. Longinus didn't help matters by leading a life of debauchery that ruled him out as an imperial candidate. When Anastasius became emperor, 
tensions were running high. A riot in the Hippodrome gave him the pretext to drive them out of the city. The riot seems, in fact, to have been directed against the prefect of the city, Julian, for reasons that have never become apparent. It may or may not have been incited by the Azorians. When Anastasius himself was present in the Hippodrome, the rioters set fire to it and pulled down some bronze statues of the emperors. Anastasius called in the palace guards to restore order. But instead of punishing the rioters, he appealed to their sympathies by blaming the Azorians. He passed a decree expelling all of them from the city. Longinus was forced to take holy orders and banished to faraway Thebes in Egypt. Anastasius confiscated Zeno's property, even selling his imperial robes, and withdrew the large allowances Zeno had been paying his fellow countrymen, amounting to about £1,400 of gold. The result was a rebellion in Azoria. Anastasius sent the Pricental armies led by John the Scythian and John the Hunchback against them. The Azorians were said to have put together an army 100,000 strong, clearly a huge exaggeration. Nevertheless, the rebels were still a formidable force and required the empire's main military resources to defeat them. At the Battle of Cotiaeum in Phrygia in 492, the regular army proved its worth. It routed the Azorians, who never recovered as an independent force. Although the survivors fled into the Taurus Mountains, and the last of them didn't surrender until 498, the Azorian problem was now well and truly over. Anastasius settled many of them in Thrace, still depopulated after the Gothic ravages. With the Azorian problem finally settled, it seemed as if the Empire's prospects were looking bright. But new problems quickly arose to replace the old ones. Before we get to these, I want to examine what most people consider Anastasius's most enduring legacy, and one for which the comparison of his reign with that of Diocletian is most striking. This is the unglamorous but highly important question of the tax system. As discussed in episode 21, back in the late 3rd century, the Emperor Diocletian had implemented an overhaul of the inefficient tax system of the classical Roman Empire that had proved to be a game-changer, allowing the Romans to fund an enlarged army that had successfully defended the empire for a century until the Battle of Adrianople began the process of military collapse that resulted in the fall of the Western Empire. So too did Anastasius now initiate a reform of Diocletian's now creaking tax regime which would enable the Eastern Empire to boost its tax revenues and fund the conquests of Justinian's reign. If ever there was a man to do this job, it was Anastasius. He'd spent a lifetime working in the Roman treasury and knew its processes intimately. His reform of the tax system wasn't motivated, as so often the case, by a need to raise money for an emergency or a political tactic designed to reward supporters, but by a genuine wish to improve the efficiency and fairness of the entire fiscal system. By doing this, Anastasius believed he would deliver both a higher tax revenue for the state and 
a more productive economy. He was proven right in both respects. His first step was popular with the poorer classes throughout the empire. This was the abolition of a tax called the Chrysargeron, which was levied on fees paid to merchants, craftsmen, moneylenders and famously prostitutes. The church was pleased with this abolition since it had long argued it conferred legitimacy on a sinful activity. Our sources describe almost hysterical joy at its abolition in the city of Edessa, quote, The entire city rejoiced, and they all put on white garments, both small and great, and carried lighted tapers and censers full of burning incense. The festivities lasted an entire week, and the happy citizens resolved to make the celebrations an annual event. Clearly, this boosted Anastasius's popularity, but you might well ask how it raised more taxes for the state. The answer was first, he seems to have viewed the Chrysagion as a difficult tax to collect, which was scarcely worthwhile doing. It was, after all, only collected once every four years. Second, to offset what loss of tax there was, he confiscated property belonging to Zeno and all his Isaurian supporters, who were now hiding in the Taurus Mountains, and appropriated their wealth for the state. This was a boost to the imperial estates. To manage them more productively, Anastasius appointed a finance minister dedicated to maximising returns. But so far, this was all small fry. Anastasius had a much bigger target in mind. His primary objective was the Annona, the central plank of Roman taxation introduced by Diocletian. This had two elements, a wealth tax and a poll tax, which he left unchanged. His innovation, however, lay with the method of collection – Diocletian had originally used government agents to collect it, thereby creating a great administrative bureaucracy. Julian the Apostate had then changed the system back to being the responsibility of town corporations, which had always been the classical Roman system of devolved administration. The problem Anastasius found was that this encouraged corruption and, in particular, large-scale tax evasion by the wealthy landowners who often dominated and controlled the town councils. This was the problem at the very top of his agenda. His solution was to revert to Diocletian's centralised tax system by restoring tax collection into the hands of government-appointed officials called vindicates. Our sources are divided on whether this cured corruption, since some say the vindicates were open to bribery, but the consensus seems to be that the power of the big landowners was reduced and they paid more tax. There was also less exploitation of the poorer farmers who had, in the past, been victimised by the landed aristocracy. Accompanying this change was an increase in government bureaucracy, although it remains unclear whether the actual tax collectors themselves remained the same people, but with a different reporting line, i.e. to the central government rather than the local one. 
Whatever the case, the Treasury Department in Constantinople became hugely powerful with its head, Marinus, who'd been Anastasius's deputy when he used to head it, becoming Praetorian Prefect. He was also rumoured to be handsomely paid. But this wasn't the end of Anastasius's reforms. Two other major issues remained to be addressed. One related to a subject shrouded in mystery for historians due to a lack of surviving records, but critically important for people at the time, which concerned the taxation of farms that fell out of cultivation because of the farmer's bankruptcy. This happened frequently and the tax regulations required neighbouring farmers to make good the tax liability through an addition to their own contributions called the epibole. Our records are very thin. It seems that Anastasius tried to ease the burden of this on poorer farmers and push it towards the larger landowners by giving government officials more authority in deciding who should pay. Again, this was part of his programme of taxing the wealthy or implementing what we would call today a proportional or even a progressive tax system, meaning one where the tax burden is spread evenly or indeed in a progressive tax system where the rich pay higher taxes than average on their wealth. Given the lack of detail in our sources, we have no hard evidence that Anastasius actually succeeded in forcing the wealthy to pay more tax. But I think there's one very good bit of evidence that does support this, which is the fact he left a huge treasury surplus of £320,000 of gold on his death. For example, two and a half times the cost of the entire North African expedition of 468, which cost £130,000 of gold. This certainly suggests someone was paying more tax than before. But that was not the end of the story. Like Diocletian and Constantine, he knew also that a robust economy was one of the best ways to boost tax revenues. As discussed in episode 21, Diocletian had tried and failed to control the rampant inflation that was such a problem in the 3rd century because of the repeated debasements of the coinage. Although Anastasius didn't have to face high inflation, he made two changes which probably had a very positive effect on the Roman economy. The first was to push tax collection towards a monetized system rather than payment in kind. Taxation had become complex and irregular. Some taxes were collected in kind, such as grain and other agricultural products, while others were only payable in gold. Collection varied from annual assessments to multi-year reviews, as I mentioned, with four years being commonly used for many taxes. Anastasius pushed for monetization of taxes wherever possible, cutting back on payments in kind, which were vulnerable to spoilage and needed to be transported. For example, some of these in-kind arrangements had originated where troops were stationed in order to feed them. This might have made sense at the time, but as the military establishments moved on, the tax arrangements often didn't change, and consequently the food was no longer easy to store or to sell. Anastasius also wanted 
to move the empire away from a barter economy, i.e. where goods were exchanged as payments in kind, towards a more monetized economy where transactions were paid in coins, since this greatly facilitated trade. The barter economy had grown since the political and military dislocation of the 3rd century. In the West, where the economy had disintegrated, it had almost taken over completely. However, in the East, the economy remained sophisticated and coins were still widely used. Nevertheless, there was still a surprisingly large amount of barter. Part of the reason for this was the lack of smaller value copper coins. The crisis of the 3rd century had focused attention on the larger value gold and silver coins, since these were being constantly debased. This had finished when Constantine introduced a pure gold solidus in 312. Made of pure 24-karat gold, the coin was struck at a rate of 72 coins to a Roman pound, which weighed about 11.6 ounces. It wasn't devalued for centuries and became the new gold standard, the dollar of the ancient world, ensuring monetary stability even during the turbulent 5th century. But the problem now lay with the smaller denomination coins. These fell out of use in the crisis of the 3rd century. The copper coins in circulation by the early 5th century had no marks of value at all, making small transactions very difficult to pay for in coins. Anastasius solved this by introducing a whole new set of copper coins, starting with a large copper follis, equivalent to 40 sesterces, and smaller coins to the value of 20, 10 and 5 sesterces. This was a long overdue remedy to a problem that was holding back economic growth. So, how can we measure this economic growth? Most historians believe there was an economic boom in the late 5th century that paved the way for Justinian's reign. Archaeological evidence certainly suggests this, since if you go to the eastern Mediterranean, you'll find an abundance of archaeological digs that are today revealing more and more about the wealth of Roman society at this time. One of the most striking and best-preserved archaeological discoveries are floor mosaics. I've seen many wonderful examples of these from the 5th and 6th centuries unearthed in recent years in Greece, Turkey and Crete, which clearly point to a very prosperous society. So where did this prosperity come from in contrast to the miserable condition of the West? The definitive examination of this subject is still waiting to be written. But the most obvious point is, of course, that the eastern provinces from Anatolia down to Egypt enjoyed an almost unparalleled century of peace in the 5th century. In contrast to the West, which was being torn apart by barbarian invasion, there were no barbarian invasions into Anatolia and the eastern provinces. There was also an unprecedented century of peace with Persia, which was contending with its own barbarians in the form of the White Huns, as we've discussed. Historians also point to an absence of droughts, famine and pestilence in the 5th century in marked contrast to what would happen in the middle of the 6th, which was shaken by the first bubonic plague to hit humanity. I think it was also a time when, at long last, 
the empire enjoyed the benefits of good leadership. With the demise of the cripplingly bad Theodosian dynasty, the emperors since Theodosius II's death in 450 were all capable. Marcion, Zeno and most of all Anastasius were efficient, focused and hard-working. They remind me of the Illyrian soldier emperors who rebuilt Rome in the 3rd century like Claudius Gothicus, Aurelian and Diocletian. These 5th century emperors have been largely forgotten and most history books only spare them a few paragraphs in contrast to the pages and pages written about Justinian. But it was these men, and most of all Anastasius, who rebuilt Rome in the East. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And in the next episode, which will be, sorry to say, in four weeks' time on the 11th of November, since I have some deadlines to meet publishing my third book in the series that accompanies this podcast, we'll hear more about Anastasius and the wars he fought both internally and externally. And in the meantime, if you like the podcast, please do leave a review in whatever podcast app you use. And most importantly of all, please do check out my website at nickholmesauthor.com where you'll find a free ebook, maps, blogs and of course my books. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>